this week, we have the opportunity to really focus in on two chapters. And I have to admit that when I first started, I thought, oh, it's just two chapters. But alas, these two chapters are pretty in-depth because they cover the Passover. They cover the Garden of Gethsemane. They cover the betrayal. And if you want to get into the real nitty-gritty, they also cover the illegal trials of the Savior. So it's nutty, right? The amount of information that's just packed into these two chapters. But really, we've got to take a look at a couple of important principles that are threaded, not only throughout these two chapters, but have really been threaded throughout the entire discussion here in this year's Come Follow Me. So if you recall, we started the year with the conversion equation. Our very first episode back in December, we talked about what it means to be truly converted. So today, we're actually going to push that concept and that idea a little bit further. And so I want you to think about this question for like a full minute, right? And the question is, what are the differences between a testimony and being converted? So what do you think? What is the difference between a testimony of being converted? Elder Bednar stated, quote, knowing the gospel is true is the essence of a testimony. Consistently being true to the gospel is the essence of conversion. So we run into this idea of knowing versus being. To know is to be acquainted with or to have the experience of. To be is the nature or essence of a person. So what I love about this is Elder Bednar pushes this topic even further. And if I were you, I would take time to go and read this particular talk. It's referenced in the Come Follow Me. You can find it in the November 2012 Enzyme or Liahona. But he talks about what a testimony is. And check out this quote. This is something else. Testimony, quote, is personal knowledge of spiritual truth obtained by revelation. A testimony is a gift from God and is available to all of his children. Fundamental components of a testimony are knowing that Heavenly Father lives and loves us, that Jesus Christ is our Savior, and that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth in these latter days. Close quote. In comparison, we find conversion is, quote, true conversion brings a change in one's beliefs, heart, and life to accept and conform to the will of God and includes a conscious commitment to become a disciple of Christ. Conversion is an offering of self, of love, and of loyalty we give to God in gratitude for the gift of testimony, close quote. Now, did you catch the heart of all of this? A testimony is to know, it's to have a knowledge of a spiritual truth, as opposed to conversion is to be or to accept and conform. Now, there's a reason that I want us contemplating about these differences, right? One is to know it's in our mind, if you will, and, and potentially in our heart. But the other one is about when we have an essence of something, it's a piece of the makeup or the composition of it. So to be converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel has to become a part of who I am fundamentally, not just something that I believe in or know. Do you see the difference there? Conversion is an actual piece of who I am. Now, the reason that we need to understand this is because of something that the Savior says in Luke chapter 22. And in the middle of Luke chapter 22, as he's talking with his disciples, 
prior to going into the Garden of Gethsemane, he says this in verses 31 through 34. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift the children of the kingdom as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. You got to love how Peter responds. And Peter said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Now, did you catch what happens here? We've got verse 31. Satan desires to sift us. And I love that comparison as he wants to sift the children of men as wheat. Now, those of you that understand the parable of the wheat and the shaft or of the wheat and the tares, you understand that the big difference between a piece of wheat and a tear has to do with the head. The head of the wheat is full of kernels of grain that is subsequently turned into bread and other items that you love to consume. And a tear has a head that is composed of nothing. Tears are empty headed. So when he says, I want to sift the children of the kingdom as wheat, he's looking for those who are truly committed, that they have a full head and they're not empty headed. Then we jump into verse 32. Love this. And he gives us this commission. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, remember, we just talked about how conversion is something that's internal. So there was this quote that hung on my office almost the entire time that I taught seminary. And it was from a couple of my nieces would call him GBH. It was from Gordon B. Hinckley. And Gordon B. Hinckley taught, quote, we cannot expect to lift others unless we stand on higher ground ourselves. Close quote. So to lift somebody else or to really assist somebody else, we have to be on that higher ground. So here you have Peter and he's determined like straight up determined that he's going to hang with Christ. And he says, I'm ready to go with thee both to prison and to death. And the reality is, is I don't doubt that. I really believe that Peter felt that way because the reality is, is I have friends and relatives in my life that I would follow them into a burning home. If they said, okay, we're going to walk into this house that's on fire, I'd be like, straight up, we're going to walk into this house that's on fire. Let's do it. I would follow them anywhere. In fact, even professionally, I've had a couple of leaders that straight up, I would I'd walk into a lake with them. Like, you name it, I would follow them. So here's Peter saying, hey, I'm going to do this. And the Savior comes around and says, nope, you are going to deny me three times before the end of the night, before the cock crows. Well, in the process of this, we run into examples then of how Peter shows us whether he simply has a testimony or if he's truly converted. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to jump over to John chapter 18. And in John chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, we find something that most of you are very aware of. The Savior has just been confronted by the mob. Judas is in the process of betraying him. And this happens. Like, I absolutely love this. Verses 10 and 11, John 18. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Can you even imagine? Just like, and your ear's gone. 
And then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? So here is Peter. He clearly has a testimony of Christ. But as Elder Bednar, again in the same talk, teaches, he says this, quote, Testimony is a point of departure. It's not an ultimate destination, close quote. So if you have a testimony, guess what? You're not done. Because the reality is, is you and I need to become converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But often we're a little bit like Peter. And what I mean by that is we want to blend into the crowd. We don't necessarily want to stick out. We don't want to let our light shine too bright, right? I don't want to be too spiritual. I don't want to be too preachy. And so we run into this issue. Well, we're going to pick on me for a minute. And back when I was like, oof, I think I was 26, 27, it was the year that my mom passed away. One of my really good friends, a member of, a, of another faith, she was not able to come home to the funeral the way that she would have wanted to, to support myself and her family. She, at the time, was going to Harvard Business School working on her MBA. After the funeral, after everything was all said and done, she invited me out to Harvard and so a couple of weeks after my mom's funeral, I flew out to Harvard and I was so excited to see her. And upon arriving there in Boston, uh, we made our way to her apartment. And after we'd sat and talked for a couple hours, she said, I arranged for you to meet a bunch of my friends from grad school. And I said, that's awesome. She's like, yeah, so we're going to go hang out with everybody tonight. I said, great. And she's like, I really am excited for you to meet them and for them to meet you. She's like, but before we go, can we role play? And I'm all role play. She's like, yeah, can we role play? you be you and I'll be my friends. I was like, wow, that's a stretch, but I'll, I'll see if I can be myself. So I said, okay. And she's like, so I'm confident that my friends are going to ask you, you know, a bunch of questions. And one of the questions is going to be, where are you from? I said, well, I'm from Farmington, Utah. Then she responded and she said, how do you like living in the Midwest? To which I responded and said, I don't live in the Midwest. I live on the other side of the Rockies. Clearly I live in the West, Utah, West, gateway to the West. To which she responded, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I recognize that we both grew up in Idaho, and no matter how many times I've tried to explain to my friends here at Harvard that I am from the West, they still think it's the Midwest. So do me a favor. When they ask you where you're from, and you say Utah, and they say, how do you like living in the Midwest? You're going to say, it's not the West. No, Candace. You're going to say, I love living in the Midwest. Play nice with Harvard. So I left her apartment that evening, repeating in my mind, play nice with the Harvard kids. Play nice with the Harvard kids. Well, we got onto the metro and we went over to the Italian sector of Boston. And sure enough, we met up with a grouping of about six other individuals. And we made our way to a pizzeria and we sat down. Well, in the process of sitting down, one of the gentlemen that was going to Harvard, working on his MBA, he turned to me and said, now, Candace, where are you from? And I said, I am from Farmington, Utah, to which she responded and said, no hesitation. How do you like living in the Midwest? And I thought to myself, play nice with Harvard. Play so nice with Harvard. And so I said, I absolutely love living in the Midwest. And he said, where exactly in Utah is Farmington? And I said, oh, it's just a little bit north of Salt Lake City. And we're going to pause there for a second and jump back into John chapter 18. Remember, the Savior said, that Peter would deny him. 
Remember also, though, in the process of this, Peter has already told us of his conviction. And then he's tried to show us his conviction by cutting off the ear of someone, which I think is a little ironic considering the Savior came to heal, repair, and sanctify. And in Peter's attempt to help him, he creates another opportunity for the Savior to perform a miracle, heal that ear. Well, as we jump back into John chapter 18 and we take a look at 15, we find this. And Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. You got to love John. He's such an interesting dude writing about himself. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple, which was John, which was known unto the high priest and spake unto her that kept the door and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Aren't thou also one of this man's disciples? Peter responds, He saith, I am not. I am not. Well, as the night progressed, you can imagine that I got a lot of interesting questions. One responded, So you're from Salt Lake City? And I said, Yes. And the next question coming from across the table was, Well, do you happen to know any Mormons? Now, let's be honest. Can you live in the larger Salt Lake City area without knowing at least one? Right? Odds pretty much in your favor that you're going to know one. But instead of simply saying, not only do I know one, I am one, which that would have made a lot of sense in that moment, I just smiled and said, yes, I know a couple. And in my head, I thought, hundred, because I was teaching six classes of seminary at that time. He said, so you do know a few Mormons? And I said, yeah. And the young lady sitting next to me, she said, well, can you tell a Mormon when they're walking down the street? To which I kind of responded in my own head and thought, well, you might be able to. I mean, theoretically, we should dress a little bit different than some of the fashions of the world and potentially groom ourselves a little bit different than some of the fashions of the world. And so I responded, um, yeah, some of them you can, but most of them, you know, they look like anybody else. Then the guy directly across from me said, well, what do Mormons eat? I thought I was about going to lose it. I said, what do you mean? What do Mormons eat? And he's like, well, like, do they have like a Mormon cuisine? And in my head, I was thinking, can you imagine what that restaurant would have if it was just typical Mormon food? Like, I'd like a, uh, I'd like a, a meatloaf with a side of funeral potatoes. Uh, we're also known like what for our jello. I'd like seven layer dip and seven layer jello as sides with that, right? And so I'm thinking about all of these things that could potentially be Mormon cuisine. And then I finally responded and I said, well, Mormons eat very similar things. In fact, they own a lot of restaurants. They own a lot of hotels. They own a lot of different places. And uh, you got to love this one gentleman. He just couldn't let it rest. He said, no, really? Like, like, do Mormons eat differently? Do they? And in my head, I was like, bro, do you have us confused with the Amish? Which often happens. And by then our pizza had arrived and he said, no, really, like, I'm just baffled at what Mormons would eat. And so trying to be kind, but not come out overly strong. Remember, play nice with Harvard. I reached down and I picked up a piece of the pizza. And as I picked it up, I said, I'm confident a Mormon would eat a piece of pizza exactly like this one. And then I took a bite, hoping that his Harvard brainiacness would draw the conclusion of, oh, I'm in the presence of a Mormon. Pause story. Peter, verse 18. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them, and he warmed himself. 
Verse 25. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. There I sat in a pizzeria in Boston being quizzed about Mormons, who they are, what they believe. And I didn't say, I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Nope, didn't say anything at all remotely like that. Instead, after taking a bite of that pizza, I flipped the conversation. And I said, hey, I heard you all have been interviewing for positions for your internships and such. Where did you guys interview? And one of the gentlemen in my conversation, he said, well, I interviewed with Mattel. And I said, that is so cool. Did they let you play? And he's like, what? And I'm all like Mattel, like the toy company. Did you get to play with anything while you were there? He kind of chuckled. He's like, no, but that could have been fun. And then they commenced to talk a little bit about it. And finally, one of them turned to me and said, wait a second. What do you do in Farmington? Play nice with Harvard. And I said, I teach high school. To which another one said, well, what subject? Play nice with Harvard. So I said, religion. And one of them piped in and said, oh, like comparative religion? To which I responded and said, no, actually just one. To which another one said, well, what religion do you teach for? And I found myself cornered. John chapter 18, verses 26 and 27. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter had cut off, Remember, Malchus saith, did not I see thee in the garden with him? Now I'm here to tell you, if somebody cut my ear off, I think I would remember what they looked like. So here is Malchus saying, hey, aren't you the dude that cut my ear off? Verse 27, Peter then denied again. And immediately the cock crew. Well, there I sat. What religion do you teach for? To which I responded, I teach for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Some people know us as the Mormons. Well, I thought the guy sitting directly across from me was going to choke on his pizza as he does this like (coughs) over there. And he's like, you're a Mormon? To which I responded, yeah, surprise, I totally am. To which he said, oh, wow, so you teach religion? And I said, yeah, I do. Well, you got to love the girl. She doesn't miss a beat. She's like, well, what do you teach in your religion courses? To which I responded and I said, well, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. And so because of that, I teach one year of the New Testament, one year of the Old Testament, one year of Book of Mormon, and one year of the Doctrine and Covenants, Church, History, or Modern Revelation. To which she responded, so students get to choose to come to your class. I said, yeah, it's actually an elective called release time. So in fact, they don't even get high school credit for attending. To which she responded, and they come? And I smiled and said, sometimes, sometimes not. It just kind of depends, but you try really hard to get them there. Well, it opened up a really broad conversation about the church. But the part that I remember the most was when we left. We finally finished dinner there and we commenced our walk to our next location. And as we were walking down the street, my friend nudged me and said, what was that? To which I responded and said, what was what? And she said, what kind of answers were those? And I smiled and I said, you told me to play nice with Harvard. So I was playing nice. 
To which she responded and said, Candace, not when it comes to your beliefs. If they knew you like I do, they would love you like I do. Never do that again. Well, I wrapped up that evening very well chastised by my friend from another faith for not embracing the opportunity to walk with Christ rather than deny is a little harsh, but I wasn't, I wasn't shouting it. See, you and I are faced every single day with opportunities to either walk with Christ or to walk away from him. So how are we showing every single day that we're converted? That the gospel is a part of who we are. See, one of the things that I love about these same chapters is that Christ himself provides us with the perfect example of what it means to be converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ or to be converted to God. It's God's gospel, right? It's his plan. Now, over in the Book of Mormon, there's this really cool prophet. His name is Abinadi. I absolutely love him. He is like a prophet with a sense of humor. And while he's standing there in front of wicked King Noah and he's teaching the people, he quotes the words of Isaiah and he says something super interesting. In verses six and seven, he says the following, Mosiah 15, six and seven. And after all this, after working many mighty miracles, say that fast three times, many mighty miracles. After working many mighty miracles among the children of men, he shall be led, yea, even as Isaiah said, as a sheep before the shearer is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Yea, even so he shall be led, crucified, and slain, the flesh becoming subject even unto death, the will of the Son being swallowed up in the will of the Father. I love the visual that that creates, the will of the Son being swallowed up by the will of the Father. Now, you may be asking, wait a second, how did that happen? And so we'll take a look here at Luke 22, and we'll jump over into verse number 39. And in Luke 22, 39, we find the Savior. He is embarking into the Garden of Gethsemane, and we find the following, 39. And he came out, and he went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. I love that moment because we get to see the true mortality and humanity of the Savior. Like he is straight up saying, okay, dad, is there a plan B? Because this plan right now is super hard. And is there another way to do this? If thou be willing, remove this cup from me. And then he speaks one of the most powerful words ever. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Not mine, but the Savior willingly submits and through his actions shows his commitment, conversion, or the essence of what it means to be 
to be a Christian. A true Christian will work to submit their will to God. So we go back to John, and here in John, we find the mob approaching the Savior, and you gotta love what he does. Verse four, Jesus, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Now look at this. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. He doesn't miss a beat. But you and I seem to kind of back up a little bit when someone says, hey, what did you do this weekend? And we may be thinking, oh, I had general conference and it was like the best thing. And we say, oh, not a lot. Or what do you believe in? Jesus, we shy away in place of just simply declaring, I am he. Now, in case we missed it, look what he says in verse number six. As soon as he said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, verse eight. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these other go their way. He declares who he is. He declares who he is, not only in word, but in action. Remember, it's at that time that Peter gets a little zealous and he cuts up Malchus' ear right off that right ear. And the Savior doesn't even miss a beat. Luke 22, 50 and 51. And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and he healed him. In short, you and I need to be more like Christ. Elder Bednar stated, quote, knowing the gospel is true is the essence of a testimony. Consistently being true to the gospel is the essence of conversion. We should know the gospel is true and be true to the gospel, close quote. I had the opportunity just the other day to be with members of extended family and Many of them have been members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and have chosen for a multiplicity of reasons to leave. And as we were talking uh, with one of them, I said, hey, have you happened to hear my podcast? To which he responded, I have heard an episode. Now remind me again what it's about. And I said, well, I'm teaching the New Testament. And I talk a lot about the teachings of Christ. To which he then responded, you talk about the Mormon Jesus? Or Jesus? I thought that was a really interesting question because for me, there is only one Jesus Christ. We should know the gospel is true and be true to the gospel, the gospel, the good news. And that good news is that Christ came, He provided the perfect example, He atoned. He died, was resurrected, established his church on two continents, and ascended to his father. And in 1820, he appeared again and subsequently reorganized his church in the latter days with all things necessary for you and I to prepare for his second coming. So we've reached a point where we have to ask ourselves, 
Do I have just simply a testimony or am I converted? Am I willing to go the distance or when it gets hard, am I going to peace out? See, in that same conversation, he says, well, don't you sometimes disagree with what the church says or with what some of the leaders say? Don't you find, and he brought up a couple of topics, a little difficult to swallow, to which I responded and said, you know, I always go back to one thing. Is the Book of Mormon true? And if the Book of Mormon is true, then Joseph Smith was a prophet. And if Joseph Smith was a prophet, then Christ's church was restored. And if Christ's church was restored, I've got to do my best to follow his teachings. It just works for me. Does it work for you? Will you go and do? Will you go and strengthen your testimony through sharing it? Now, remember, testimony is not the destination. The destination is to be converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to know Christ and to be like him. So will you go and find a way to become more converted? What is it in your life that you need to do? And and maybe it's just simply start studying the New Testament. But how will you strengthen your testimony? And subsequently, in what way will we become more converted? I know that as you do, you will become steadfast and immovable, abounding in good works and having the Spirit of Christ. He desires for you and I to be converted. Remember, we started it off with this teaching, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Go make this week amazing by strengthening your testimony, finding a way to be converted, and bringing others unto Christ. You got this. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Go and Do podcast. We would love it if you would leave us a review and click follow where you listen to your podcasts. We'd also appreciate hearing from you. Feel free to email us at thegoanddopodcast at gmail.com or connect with us on Instagram at goanddopodcast. The Go and Do Podcast is created by me, Ken Shu, and produced by Cammie Fisher. We love having you follow along and look forward to hearing from you.